So, so uh, who are you and what do you do? So I am Tom Standage and I am Deputy Editor at The Economist. And uh, what I do, I suppose, is I think about where The Economist needs to go in the digital future. So I, I that involves a lot of things. It involves digital strategy. It involves... Um, you know, talking to people, it involves developing new products, it involves trying to change the culture inside the company. Uh, so it's a lot of different things. But essentially, I have the responsibility for sort of making sure that we go in the right direction with our digital output. Okay, so And just to be clear, you've been there for quite a while, right? I've been here a long time. I've been at The Economist for 17 years. And I started as science correspondent in 1998. And I've done various things since then. I've covered tech for the business pages. I've been the business editor. I've run the back half of the uh, of the paper, as we call it. So that's the business, the finance, and the science sections. Um, and I've been the digital editor, and I've run the tech quarterly. for. I did that for about a decade as well, in parallel with a lot of those other jobs. So there's, there's usually been a sort of business tech side to the coverage when I've actually been writing stories. And it meant that when uh, things like apps came along and when our web strategy started to become more important, I went from not just sort of writing about what companies should do generally, but also I became involved in deciding what we should be doing specifically at The Economist. Okay, so, and before we get into that and the new products, because that, that, that I do want to ask you about that. You did mention something that I wanted to ask about, changing the culture, right? Yeah. Because that, that's one of the reasons I wanted to talk to you, because you've been at a, at a newspaper right before all of this happened and by this i mean the internet yeah 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 (laughs) Yeah. well sort of actually i haven't quite because what got me into journalism was the internet so i studied computer science at oxford and i knew i didn't i did engineering and computer science i knew i didn't want to be an engineer and maybe i should have just gone into software but um, at the time (laughs) you couldn't do computer science on its own at oxford and um so I ended up doing this degree that was quite a broad grounding in physical sciences. Anyway, I then did, after university, I did a number of things. I worked a bit as a programmer. Um, I did some photography. I did some, you know, some copywriting. I did some technical illustration. I did a bunch of different things. And then the thing that happened was the internet became a consumer product, as it were. And uh, right at the beginning of, I think it was 1994, I, I got my first dial-up connection. I'd been on CompuServe for a couple of years. But essentially, <laughs> it, became, it became obvious then. By this time, I was, I was writing for some computer magazine as well. I was doing software reviews and, and that sort of thing. And um, and it became obvious that nobody knew about this. And um, so I started pitching stories to the newspapers and I started writing for The Guardian. And I went to The Guardian for a year and worked on their new internet supplement because everyone was creating internet supplements in those days. <laughs> and then The Telegraph, which is another British newspaper, decided they wanted to do the same. So um, they stole me and I went there for two years. Uh, but I could see that the whole kind of phenomenon of these internet supplements in magazines in newspapers was a short-term phenomenon it was just a way to get advertising money from the ISPs and the manufacturers of modems and so I thought this is not going to last I have to go to a publication that does not rely on this short-term uh, boost I have to switch over so I, I decided that I'd always read The Economist and I decided what I wanted to do was move to The Economist and work on the science pages and I had the background in physical sciences for my engineering degree so my last year at the Telegraph I wrote every article I wrote deliberately I wrote it in um, Economist style which meant that when I then applied for a job at The Economist I could produce all these clips and say look I've been running this section at the at the Telegraph, I can write in the style, you can trust me, I can do this job. And so they hired me. Um, and in fact, the second week I was here, I had to run the science section. So they obviously decided I was trustworthy as an editor as well. Anyway, so that was how I how I uh, got into journalism. And then I thought I'd got away from writing about the internet, but of course it came, <laughs> inevitably, it became very important. So this is, I've, I've ended up now in a situation where um, I am at the top of a news organisation that is struggling with this. And um, the thing it's struggling with is something I know a lot about and have seen evolve for the last 25 years. I used the internet for the first time in when I was a student at Oxford in 1989. Um, and I'm a coder. And so I can see into the tech world, I can see into the journalism world, and I also understand about the business models of startups and, you know, the the landscape of the uh, the internet industry, as it were, because I covered that for many years, uh, as well as a correspondent. So, I, I'm able to see into those three worlds, which should mean that um, <laughs> I'm in a good position to figure out what we should, should do about it. Yeah, that, that, that's the thing. Like, you can look into those places, but then you have to sort of look forward, and that's where the fun begins, I guess. Well, I, so, and then on the looking forward, the, another thing I've done in parallel with all of this is write history books. And uh, one of the ways I look forward is 
by writing history books because I'm the subtext of all my history books is you know what can the past tell us about the future so that's one way of looking forward journalism itself is a way of looking forward because ultimately what's happening here is that I'm obsessed with the future and I investigate it in three ways through history through journalism because journalism allows me to talk to people who are living in the future today you know the the William Gibson idea that the future is unevenly distributed so um Talking to people, I went in a self-driving car in Shanghai traffic the other day. You know, those those sorts of doing those <laughs> sorts of things, talking to the people who are inventing the future, is another way of trying to work out what it looks like. And the third way I try and work out what it looks like is by reading lots of sci-fi, um, because I think it's <laughs> you know th- those the sci-fi authors have really thought about this, and uh, well, if you choose the right ones, and I, I find that very helpful as well. Wait, 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 choose the right ones. What does that mean exactly? Like- well, I think I th- you have to read hard sci-fi, so they have to be. You know, I, I'm not interested in in sci-fi. That has magic or dragons or tips over into fantasy, <laughs> um, and so. But I like the you know with with Ian Banks or um, Alistair Reynolds is my current favourite, and so he's a former European Space Agency scientist who now has switched over full time to being an author, and he writes. Um, you know, I really, really like what he does. He's very good on on posthumanism, transhumanism, and the implications of that. And he's also very good on uh, something I'm particularly interested in at the moment and reading a lot of sci-fi about is augmented reality and what a world of, of ubiquitous augmented reality looks like. That's something that he is, you know, he's just baked that into several of his books. So I find that, and it's not even what the books are about. I mean, the books are often about something else, but they're set in a future where the org, uh, as he calls it, is uh, is ubiquitous. So um, I find that you know, very interesting. And with Ian Banks, you know, he he's writing about these orbitals, these giant ring worlds that you see in video games like Halo. And uh, you can tell that he's worked out, he's done the math, or he's got someone to do it for him. So that, you know, how fast you have to spin a ring of a certain size to get one G on the inside rim. You know, he's, he's clearly done his homework. So that's the kind of thing I, I'm looking for in a science fiction author. <laughs> that's, yeah, okay, fair enough. Like, I was not expecting an answer to that one, but yeah, awesome. <laughs> okay, just like drag back a little because the, the whole culture changing thing oh is, yeah sorry that's where we <laughs> sorry yeah that's where we want because like, I, I really do want to sort of talk to you about it because yeah. I'm sort of in a, a similar situation at the magazine I work for right and that sort of I, I, I never foresaw that because I was always looking from like you know, my own brain out and I just figured that everybody would see Sort of the internet for no. So I, I think there are two. I think there are two big challenges. There's there's the normal challenge, as it were, that all companies face, which is that when you try to pivot the company towards the internet, there are always going to be people who think that it's a hobby, that it's a fad, it's going to go away, um, and so you have to sort of try and persuade them it's not the case. And you know, for in our case, when I started trying to get people to do more for our website, and I didn't want to do what a lot of news organisations do, which is have a separate team of people who write for the web, because I think that's just, you know, ultimately, that's not the long-term solution. You've got to have the same editorial team, and particularly with The Economist, because we have a, a line, we have a position on everything you can't have um, a specialist uh, writing for the for the for the print edition who knows and, and, and sets our line on a particular subject and then have someone else writing for the web because they just aren't going to necessarily align and you're going to lose that consistency which is a very important part of our brand so I really wanted the expertise and the knowledge of the print journalists to be applied online so in the early days of trying to make that happen there were people who said well you know why are we doing this you know what would you like us to do less of um, so that we can make time for this and you have to be able to answer those questions Um, and you have to be you have to be able to say that this is important and in the long term this is where where we're probably going to end up Uh, so you need leadership from the top you need the editor-in-chief to say this is important Um, and the editor-in-chief at the time John uh, you know made that case and Zanny his his success who took over in January has made that case more forcefully I think she's actually made it easier in that regard so people can tell this is something that we have to do but the other thing is just the numbers I mean you know The Economist makes about 20 million pounds a year in uh advertising revenue from its website and you know that's less than 10% of our overall revenues but but it's still a serious amount of money and so you say to people well this isn't a hobby the assumption that the the web is just a sort of money pit that we're that we're losing money on and that life would be much easier if we just didn't bother that's not true we have to do this strategically but 
if, if for no other reason, it actually makes us quite a lot of money. So um, <laughs> I, I, some people were quite surprised to hear that. They had assumed that we were we were losing, because, you, know, you know, they assumed that all internet companies fail and go bust, except... Well, I, I'm one of them. Yeah, that surprised me as well. So, yeah. Yeah. So, so I think actually showing people the data and saying, look, this is this is how many people come and this is how many people read the stories and this is, this is how big the audience is and this is how much money we're making. And, uh, you know, actually a lot of journalists are rightly focused on writing their stories and they're not really that interested in the figures for the company and you know maybe they look at the circulation but that's about all um but the the internet allows us to see all these numbers and so i think some people at least can be persuaded using them that's one thing the other thing is we've had a demographic shift um in the last few years where we've had more uh people come in into senior roles in the in the economist which is quite a small flat organization anyway um who are you know who've grown up with using the internet a bit more and they are happy to go on twitter and they don't think it's all um you know a distraction from their real jobs. In fact, we see this in history, you know, when the telephone appeared, people said, how will anyone get any work done? Because, you know, they'll just be talking <laughs> on the telephone all day. And we now recognise that talking on the telephone is like a legitimate part of your job. And answering email, well, that, that takes up, you know, hours of your day. But actually, a big part of my job is answering email, because that's how you make decisions and tell people what to do. Um, although there are other things too. So Slack is a, is another thing. Anyway, oh, yeah. so 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 and we're big fans of that. Anyway, but I think there's the general problem of how you get an organization to take the internet seriously and you know there are there are going to be different ways of, of doing that in, in different companies with different cultures. But I think that's that's a problem that like all industries have had to deal with. In news organizations there is a more specific problem, which is that we have this tradition of a of a church state divide. So we have the editorial staff separated from the commercial staff. And this is you know this is a good thing. Uh, and you don't want the editorial staff to be kind of worrying about you know how much uh, an article that they write annoys an advertiser or something. You want to keep them apart Part. Um, but the, the problem we have now is that the stronger that Chinese wall between editorial and commercial is, um, actually the worst position you're in now, because there yeah. are a lot of functions, not editorial, you know, choosing what subjects to write about, that needs to be separate. But there are a lot of other functions where it's very important that editorial talks to the rest of the organisation on things like technology development, because we have to use these tools uh, for our website and for our apps and so on. And we have to, we have to be involved in you know, deciding what the new products are. And we can't just have the commercial people doing that for us and saying, now you write the articles and we'll pipe them in. So we have to be involved in that. We have to be involved in social media. Uh, it's not just a marketing function. It has to be something that editorial is involved in. Um, analytics is something else. We have to be, you know, we have to have an editorial analytics team. And then obviously you can have a marketing analytics team as well if you want, but they need to talk to each other. So there are all of these areas where it's really important that journalists talk to the people in the organization that they previously haven't talked to. And you need to do all of that while maintaining the editorial independence. So that is a second and sort of uh, unique to this industry challenge on the whole question of, you know, how you change the culture, because um, you need to you need to get people to, to think about talking to people in other parts of the organization that maybe they wouldn't have done before. And, and that's a particular challenge, as I say, for news organizations. Yeah, because, okay, see, that, that's the part I wanted to talk to you about, especially with social. I, I guess I'll dwell on that a little. But like you said, that Chinese wall that divides like editorial and everybody else, at least my feeling is, and maybe you'll agree or disagree, but like journalists were never sort of Ma um, made to that, that's a strong word but they never felt the need to sort of you know make their presence known like the 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 paper or the you know television station sort of made that uh, that just happened by default if you know what i mean like well i don't know about that i think some i mean a lot of journalists write books and we like going on the telly and on the radio so um so <laughs> that's fair yeah a lot of us are you know naturally self-promoters um not everyone is and so but the naturally self-promoting ones will jump on twitter and, and very happily promote their own work and that of their colleagues and that of you know of anything else they think is interesting so those people do it anyway um you're right though there are journalists who say look it isn't my job um and i don't see why i should do this and You'll persuade some of them. I mean, you persuade. I mean, the value of Twitter isn't just that you know you use it to tell people about how awesome you are. Um, you you actually learn a great deal from it. And uh, journalists in particular are, you know, hooked on Twitter 
in fact it distorts the way we cover twitter we kind of there's a a presumption in in a lot of media coverage of twitter that like everyone in the world is on twitter and it's not (laughs) true um you know my mother is not on twitter and i don't think she ever will be i I just can't see what she would do and twitter is is frankly quite confusing i mean it is it's got a this is the big problem they have with their user growth slowing um and the other thing about twitter is i mean my my wife is a big fan of um, social media of all kinds particular in particular photo based uh social but um, but she she sort of said, okay, I'll do Twitter because she'll sign up for every new social network like I do. And um, and it was only after sort of 18 months of being on Twitter that she finally had one of those moments that you have on Twitter where, you know, enough of your friends are online at, at the same time that you end up having a spontaneous discussion about something and people who you know but haven't met each other end up talking to. And it's just really great. And she, she had one of these things happen and she said, oh, I, I can see why you like Twitter now. I can finally see the point of it. But you only get to that point when you've got, you know, a few hundred followers and it probably takes a year and you really have to invest the time and it's very very hard for twitter to communicate that to new users um and it's so you know i think that's that's fundamentally their their problem anyway going back to journalists and twitter so so some journalists will do it naturally they'll they'll recognize that it's very useful as a source of information uh, even if it's just of industry gossip frankly uh and you can see what's going on and you know when you when you're waiting for an announcement to come out or a press release or you know something like that twitter is the place to go because someone somewhere is going to be the first to, to tweet it, that's where the news is going to going to appear first. So so that's great, and you can persuade some people with that. Uh, there was a there was definitely a shift in the industry after the Arab Spring, where so much of the news was breaking on social that people in newsrooms, um, and I had I've had many people tell me this in different news organisations uh, who were sceptical about this, suddenly realised that you know they needed to be uh, they needed to be on on social media and needed to be on Twitter and finding out what was going on, uh, and also they would start to notice that you know their colleagues who had jumped on Twitter and were really pushing hard on it um, had gathered you know tens of thousands of followers and they were saying well you know why are they do I should be able to do that so there was there was a little bit of a catch-up then um, so I think you can persuade some people in the middle but I think there will always be some people who just say you know what I'm not going to do this um, I'll let other people do it and I think you just have to accept that some people aren't and that's fine and you need to um, ideally what you want to do as a news organization or as any company is you want to take advantage of the the people on the staff who are naturally good at this and they they do emerge and you can you can see who they are and then you say right this person really knows what they're doing and we have a few stars like that on the staff um who are just naturally brilliant at uh at writing you know at writing tweets and, and using social media and so that you then say right we're going to have them uh run the social media for 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 the economist and uh, and that's the way we do it okay, and just uh, one more thing on that how do you reconcile that because it is more work let's just let, let that's a given right if you you know, if you're a journalist that didn't deal with the internet before, yes, it is. Well, it is. Well, it's it is and it isn't. I mean, it is a way of finding out what's going on. So it does fit in with the kind of looking for stories, um, you know, side of the job. But it fits in with reporting. And I very often find if I, you know, I I know enough people on Twitter that if I if I want to, I could send a DM to someone inside a company and say, "Have you heard about this? Or what's going on here? Or can you comment on this?" Um, I did an interview. I did a couple of interviews the other day. We launched. A, I was I was on the other side of the fence, as it were. Um, we launched our new venture economist films and a couple of publications did stories about it and one of them was Bloomberg and the Bloomberg journalist um, I was playing the drums at the time <laughs> um, so I was in a rehearsal studio playing the drums and he wanted an interview so I ended up just giving him what he wanted over DM we just did the we did a very quick interview over Twitter DM and it was great actually and I think I'd like to do interviews like that in the future because you, you've got a you've got a transcript and he basically wanted quotes or sound bites and Twitter kind of forces you to write them um, so so I thought that that worked really well but anyway so um in that case he was using twitter to get you know to get quotes for his story and i've done that the other way around as well uh, because you know very often you'll be you'll end up being followed by and following people who are quite difficult to get access to um but you you do end up talking to them on twitter so you know i've i i talk to people i talk to mark andreessen sometimes on twitter i've only met him a couple of times in real life but um but funnily enough we end up talking on Twitter about bourbon. <laughs> yeah, the important stuff, yeah. Exactly, exactly. Quartz actually made an article about the discussion about bourbon because it turned out that Mark likes a particular bourbon called Weller 12. Um, and so this, the article was, if you're pitching to Mark Andreessen, this is the bourbon to take him. It's meant that, that that bourbon immediately sold out around the world. So you now can't get it. But uh, but anyway, why am I saying this? I, because basically, I think um, it, it is, yeah, it is more work. Um, 
in some ways, but it does also substitute for other kinds of journalistic work. So the other thing we did, for example, with some of our um, editors who used to have to maintain um, topic pages, subject pages, on, so we, on our website, you know, we have a homepage, and then we have like a business homepage, and then we have an Asia homepage and that kind of thing. And you look at the numbers, and it's pretty obvious that um, the number of people going to the homepage is, is declining as a proportion of the overall traffic. Most people are coming in through the side door of social or search. Mm-hmm. Um, but we've got to have a homepage, so we still do that. But but the, the other um, homepages we had for these other subject areas, uh, we had people, you know, curating them, but it probably wasn't worth it. I mean, the amount of traffic those pages was, were, were getting, um, frankly, you could have a reverse cron feed of, of our stories on Asia, and that would be as, you know, that would be 99% as good for 99% of visitors. So, uh, so one of the things we did last year was we got rid of those pages, we replaced them with automatic feeds, and then we said to the people who were maintaining them, who were the, you know, the, the people in the Asia section in this example who were responsible for that, we'd say, right, instead of doing that, instead of spending, you know, five hours a week doing that, we would rather you spent that time on social promotion. So I think if you're going to put things on people's plates, then you have to recognise that, you know, they haven't got an infinite amount of time. And so you're much more likely to get them to do something like social if you take something else off their plate at the same time. The, the thing I wanted to ask about sticking with culture for just one more question, I guess. Yeah, yeah. You said it was a pretty much a flat structure at The Economist. Yeah, I mean, it's a small organisation. So there's only uh, there's only sort of 90 journalists working on the, the magazine. And then there's a layer of section editors. And then there are sort of five um, senior editors at the top. So stories go up through you know, to the section editor and then the department head um, and then they get read by the editor-in-chief or the deputy editor. And that, you know, the, new, the Wall Street Journal used to have five or six layers of editors, I think. I mean, so as, as organisations go, it's quite small and most people are sort of two hops away from the top person. Do you see what I mean? Yeah. So the other thing about it is that we don't have a lot of things that newspapers, a lot of newspapers have. We don't have any sub-editors and we don't have any leader writers. So that makes things simpler as well. And then the other weird thing about it is we don't really have a very strong divide between writers and editors. So nearly all of the writers edit and nearly all of the editors write. That means that the structure is quite fluid because, you know, when the Asia editor's away, someone in the Asia section will stand in and be the Asia editor and they will then be one step up the um, the hierarchy. So, um there is a kind of general, you know, it's a small, it's a small group of people, smaller than the Dunbar number, so we all know each other, uh, and as a result, you don't get sort of, you know, massive bureaucratic problems that you know you you need to have sort of departmental meetings and, and, and things like that to to make decisions. Um, and the other thing is that the editor you know, has an enormous amount of power to just say, we're going to do this and we all get on with it. So, um, so all of that, uh, all of that on the editorial side of things makes for, I think, quite a efficient and decisive um, way of doing things. And, you know, that's, a, that makes for a very healthy and happy working environment. Oh, I'm glad you said efficient and decisive instead of agile, because that's, you know, that, that... Well, there's a debate about, yeah, exactly. <laughs> so on the commercial side, obviously, they're very keen on, on, on agile. But yes, we don't, we don't, uh, agile is its own, its own terminology. But no, I think, I think the main thing is that the um, you know Zani is a, is very very decisive and says what she wants and we all get on with it um, and also you know there isn't a there aren't layers and layers of bureaucracy to getting things done uh, and that's it's a quite a small academic kind of atmosphere we don't have an open plan newsroom we have small offices and um, it's it feels quite academic we're running out of space in our office though so we may need to switch to open plan but oh don't do that just do not don't. well we may not have any choice but some bits of the office are are open plan already so oh, okay. um, yeah but but I know what you mean we kind of mess with the culture at our peril because it does it does work very well yeah that that's always a tricky thing when that like the the office changes man that's always weird yeah exactly always okay so uh, when you said you know the history books and stuff right I should tell you, there's a Slovene podcast where they spent, I think, an hour and a half on your latest book. Oh, right. Excellent. Just, just so you know. Yeah, there's like three people talking about writing on the wall. So. Oh, right. Brilliant. <laughs> well, okay, but, uh, you know, you said you look backwards to sort of look forward, right? And, like, I, I like correct me if I'm wrong, but the whole conceit of the book is that basically social media is not a new thing. Yeah. The, the idea is that social media is, you know, can be traced back to the Roman period. And um, so if you define social as, you know, media you get from other people. Um, and for most of history, that's how you got information. Uh, you got it from your friends and you all wrote letters to each other or you sent each other poems or you exchanged commonplace books or you passed pamphlets around or whatever. And of course, that was how it had to work because there was no 
mass media. There was no broadcast. Um, so what we had in the 19th century and then in the 20th century, but starting in the middle of the 19th century, was the invention of machines that made it possible to deliver information very efficiently to large audiences um, in, a, you know, in one direction. Uh, and that was what kind of gave birth to the mass media. And we got a whole load of business models around that of radio and TV stations and of mass circulation newspapers. Because newspapers were very small. I mean, the biggest newspaper in the world at the beginning of the 19th century was the Times of London. It had a circulation of 8,000. So, uh, you know, newspapers were mostly local social platforms up to that point. And then the steam press uh, meant that you could have a circulation of a million. So what that did was it raised barriers to entry to media, because in order to be a, a broadcaster or a newspaper proprietor, you needed to be able to buy a radio transmitter or a warehouse full of printers, uh, printing presses. And um, so, you know, the New York Times and other newspapers like that that were started, or even The Economist, that were started in the 1840s and the 1850s, were started on, you know, with with $1,000 or $2,000. I mean, it was a very the barriers to entry were low. Anyway, then the barriers to entry become high and you get this very high concentration. Uh, and then what the internet does around 2000 is it, it, it essentially undermines that model because it says, well, now there is a way to reach a mass audience um, without having to invest in all of that equipment. So we now recognize that the mass media era was a short-term phenomenon uh, brought about by um, the lack of an efficient way to reach a large audience cheaply. Um, so we're now kind of, that's why all the mass media business models are unraveling. Uh, because they were based on this short-term phenomenon and the short-term monopolies that came with it. Um, and it also means that the way that we get information now is much more likely to be mediated by our friends and our social circles, which is the way things worked before mass media. So that's why I'm kind of saying, well, if we go and look at how media worked before the um, the steam press and before the radio transmitter, um, then it will, it will tell us a lot more about the dynamics of social media environments than you might think so but does that happen again and i, I know like in the long term i guess it's going to happen again because i think your divide was old media right mass media and then new media or something like no, that. no 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 so oh, no. the old the traditional divide is old media and new media so okay. old media was um was radio and, and newspapers and tv and then new media was the internet right and that's what the way we've been used to thinking about things but what i'm saying is that old media isn't that old the old media models only start in the 1830s and if you look at the media before that, which is what I call really old media. Oh, really old. Sorry. Yeah, really old. <laughs> uh, yeah, really. So, so really old media is, is kind of um, the Roman period up to 1833. Um, and really old media <laughs> looks a lot like new media. And it's old media in the middle that's the kind of special case. You see, that's the thing I found fascinating when I, like, when I, I saw a talk of yours recently that you did at Google, right? And it reminded me all of like, the stuff in the book. But like, the thing is, that just sounds like the CD in the music industry. Yeah. Like, that's basically it, right? It was just this br basically brief period, period of time where you were able to make serious amounts of money. Well, or vinyl as well. I mean, you know, because the way people heard music, I mean, it's obvious in retrospect, the way people heard music in the past was they heard people performing it or they sang at home or they sang in church or whatever. And so music was a social medium at that point. Um, and then you get the industrialization of music in the 20th century, well, starting in the late 19th century with, you know, the phonograph and so on. And it becomes a thing you get through the radio and, and um, you know, through through uh, buying records and, and so on. Um, and now, you know, in theory, at least, um, you can listen to a much wider range of music and you can get social recommendations for music from your friends. And so it's a bit more like the way it was before. And more people can publish their music to, to you know, to, to, for consumption by the public than, than could before. So that, it's another example of the same phenomenon, um, that we used to have this very, very tightly reg regimented industry where the, the gatekeepers were the record companies and they decided you know, who, got, who got heard and who didn't. Um, and now, actually, we're back to, um, you know, if, you, if you could make enough people interested in your blog or music or whatever, um, then you could build an audience for it. Yeah, them. you see, that's, that's where it breaks down for me. Because if that's true, if you're English or American or like French, yep. there's two million people in Slovenia. Right. Like there's no way to sustain stuff like that. That's what I find so fascinating. When well, it, this is, but you're doing it, you're doing it by doing things in English. I mean, you're building a wider audience than just in Slovenia by doing a podcast in English. So, that, that is true. Yeah. That's, yeah, yeah. So, I mean, that's a good example where, whereas previously, you know, would you have been able to, as a, as a Slovenian interested in interesting things, would you have been able to amass a, or create a global community of, of, of people? 
example. I mean, I, you know, I think you are an example of, uh, of this, and that, um, and if you were, you know, depending on the medium you're working in, if you were a musician or an artist, then the the language barrier would be much less important. Um, so you would be able to, you know, if your work was was if people liked it, uh, and, and enough people enough people thought it was a good thing, then you know, again, you could you could uh, establish a, a name for yourself in a way that you might have had trouble doing so before. Well, yeah, but the only yeah the other place where that breaks down, like that's all fine, right? But when you have to deal with you know with we're like a sovereign nation, you know, we have our own like politics and stuff, and when you have to deal with that, right? I don't know how I'll say you know old media, right? Like how that transitions into the web era without it all going to just you know just all falling apart basically well no it, you, you make a good point which is that um one of the things the idea of the nation state the rise of <laughs> the rise of the nation state in the, in the 19th century is is actually very closely aligned with the advent of these new media technologies one of the things you could do to bind a country together um is you you know if everyone's reading the same news if everyone's reading the same newspaper and listening to the same radio station a really good example is Italy. So Italy had, before it was unified in whatever it was, 1875, um, it had a, a quite a lot of different dialects that were mutually indistinguishable. As soon as you start to get national newspapers and national radio, you start to homogenise the language and you actually introduce a sense of national unity, um, which might not have been there before. So actually this idea of um, of media and national unity going together is, is quite a well-established one. Um, but what does that mean when you don't have national media anymore. Does that mean that... And, and I think... I, yeah, so you start to see this already. You start to see that people identify themselves in, in sort of tribes rather than countries. So my daughter is a good example. My, do my daughter is a huge fan and there are many, many people, she's a teenager, many people her age around the world who are huge fans of Japanese anime. And they love the... Um, they love anime. They love the tropes. They love the way that um, it's a kind of modern day mythology. Um, and there are all of these stories and there are new ones coming out all the time and they can go watch the old ones and um, she has a lot more in common with you know anime fans in different countries around the world than she does with you know people in her street who aren't into anime um, <laughs> in, in, in some respect so so you do get this kind of um, and you get the same with music you know you don't really get national you maybe you do in some languages but but you now get tribes of people around the world who like different kinds of music rather than just liking the music in their country um, and so this is the kind of effect that um, digital media has and you know you can ask argue that it makes um, nation states less viable we're seeing a oh, uh, yeah. you know we're seeing more interest in city level economies you know people talk about the c60 is it you know the 60 biggest um and it, you know and most ac economic activity is focused in cities so you're, you're you're starting to see quite a few examples of nation states being relatively less important you know i don't know whether that means they go away altogether and become irrelevant but but uh, but certainly you could make the case that they're less significant than they used to be and there are many reasons for that but um, but, but you know, digital technology is certainly one of them. Oh yeah, well that that's sort of you know when you talk to a guy from a country with two million people, that sounds daunting. Like that's scary as hell. But you know, I guess. Right. <laughs> but yeah, it does make sense. But you see, that that's why I sort of like talking to you guys because you you do get to, you know when you said uh, what's the circulation of the Economist? One point six million. Yeah, that's insane, right? That's like, that's basically the number of adults. The entire population of Slovenia. I see what you mean. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. You see, and that's that's where I that's where it gets really really interesting to me, right? Because when you guys talk about it, it's sort of you know some of some of the things are just a given. You know, some of those things, when you say, and we should talk about the, you know, the new sort of digital products you've launched at The Economist, especially Espresso, which I find awesome, right? Right. Oh, thank you. Yeah, but like, stuff like that sort of just, it's it's viable out of the box for you guys. Do you see what I mean? Well, yes, yeah, we're, we're very lucky. So Espresso was interesting because the thinking behind it was tech firms think about products in a particular way. They think that the value is in the technology. And in order to, and then media companies tend to think that the value is in the content and that the technology that you use to deliver it is just a detail. Um, and it, actually, in order to make a successful news product in the future, we need to think about the content and the technology and the business model all together. And we don't need to just take our existing articles and funnel 
them into an app and expect people to read them every day. So with Espresso, I looked at it and said, well, if we're going to make a daily briefing product, um, which is what I wanted to do. So in other words, something that does the same job for readers each day that The Economist weekly does each week. So the job that The Weekly does is you curl up with it on Friday or Saturday and you read it for about an hour and a half and then it tells you what's going on in the world. And then when you've done that, you go, great, I've finished it. So it's giving you a finite bundle of content that you can actually finish in a world of infinite streams. Uh, And that's really the value of what we do. It's that filtering. We're a trusted filter for our readers. Um, So I thought, well, we're doing that on a weekly basis. And that's clearly something that people want. And in fact, the noisier the media environment gets, the more people seem to want it. But um, shouldn't we have a daily version of that as well? And so uh, then I started to think, well, what would that look like? And I thought, well, it wouldn't have the kind of classic Economist 700 word articles in it. Um, If we're going to build this for quick consumption uh, on a smartphone in the morning, a shot of information like an espresso shot, which is where the name comes from, um, then we should um, actually make a new kind of article format. So we came up with these 150-word pieces we call chunks. Um, So there's a kind of new editorial model there. Then there's the business model for how we do it, which is we make it free to existing subscribers, but we allow new subscribers to subscribe to it. And obviously, it costs less than a subscription to The Economist weekly. So we hope it's a sort of stepping stone product for new readers. Um, And then there's the technology, which is, you know, we'll do this as an app. We'll also do it as um, as a... an email, but mainly it's you know presented as an app. Um, and so I went and built the first prototype, and I presented the whole thing um, to the board and said, "This is what I think we should do. This is the editorial model. This is the business model. This is how the technology would work." Uh, and they said, "Yes, do it," and uh, produce the money. So we then did it as an internal startup. And the great thing about that is that um, we had the freedom of action of a startup, um, but we also had the resources of the existing economist uh, group to draw on. So obviously we had the journalists, because the same journalists writing Espresso who were writing the weekly. We had the marketing of The Economist. We had the brand. We had the audience. And we could then roll it out to the audience and say, here it is. And, you know, straight away have a weekly reach of 200,000 people. Um, so there are what we were trying to do was was uh, borrow the right bits from the startup world and the startup culture and look at what the interesting new news apps were doing and say, well, what's the economist response to that? Uh, so in that respect, we are looking at what the tech industry is doing and what startups are doing, and at the same time, take advantage of the uh, of the benefits of being, you know, a storied news organisation with a big circulation and a big brand, and you know, lots of other resources we can draw on. So that's the sort of genesis of Espresso. Okay, uh, just one point on that because uh, I listened to the periodicalist that you did with Dick Glenn, and yes. that sort of notion of finishing stuff. Finishability right? is absolutely key. Yes. Like I would have never thought of that. Well, this is this, this. So this is. I mean, I've been banging on about this for for a while but I think it's I think it's quite important it is the it is the USP of the economist hidden in plain sight uh, which is that you can get to the end of it and the reason that you know that the the job you can also look at this in terms of Clayton Christensen's jobs to be done framework what is the job we do for readers the job is ultimately um, we save them time but uh we figure out what's important and tell them. And if you haven't got time to read everything, which you don't, because no one can read everything, you never finish the internet. You never finish Twitter. You can't even finish the New York Times. So um, that feeling of finishing when you get to the end, that satisfaction that you've caught up and you're no longer feeling overwhelmed by new information, that's really what we're selling. The feeling of being smarter and on top of the news when you get to the end. Um, There's a very nice quote from Larry Ellison of Oracle, who is an economist reader, which kind of summarises this. And he says, I used to think... Now I just read The Economist. And, uh, you know, that, obviously that's exaggerating a bit. But the idea is that, you know, we have thought really hard about what the most important events are this week and what you should think of them and what they mean. And um, that means that, you know, we can deliver all of that to you on a plate. You could read it and finish it. And then that gives you permission to do something else. Okay. So in, in that vein, like, you, you, you sort of, everything I've read about, like, when you talk about the stuff or listen to you on podcasts and stuff and interviews, you sort of, I get the sense that you actually, you do realize that the economist is sort of, is, you know, when you said it's a storied newspaper and, you know, with a trusted filter and all of that stuff, like, there's a sense you do sort of, you, you take that into account and you sort you know that you're lucky that you read The Economist, if you know what I mean. Yeah, well, no, I, I would say, I would go further than that and say an awful lot of, because I'm asked to explain our business model to people a lot, because 
you know we're still a profitable news organization and our circulation is is doing well and so on um and they say well well what's the secret and i, I there isn't a secret i could i'm very happy to be very open about all of this stuff because um basically it's not really something that anyone else can emulate and it's not because of a particularly clever model an awful lot of this is luck uh so we were very lucky that we are a publication in english because uh, that turns out to be great um, <laughs> you know that turns out to mean that you get you can you can address a very large um, audience yeah, can i amend that a little you're, you're, a, you're a publication in english based in england but the americans read you right well no so this is a this is the so we started off mostly re- readers in england and we only really started pushing into the u.s in the 70s Um, and we really started to do well in um, in the 90s um, because globalization was happening and we provide a global view of the world um, and, and of world news and of the week's news and a lot of American publications tend to kind of report as if America is the only place in the world <laughs> um, so there was a there was demand not just in the US but actually around the world from people who wanted glo- a global perspective and as you know globalization the idea that companies need to think globally and and, and you know there are global markets in capital and and ideas and labor and so on um, we very much benefited from that because that's always been our perspective the view from the moon you could call it so that was one thing that helped and then and particularly during the 90s and the bush years of the 2000s um there was a very strong demand in america for a um a perspective on america from outside oh, right, yeah. um and so most of our readers are in are in north america so more than half of our 1.6 million something like 900,000 are in the us and canada um so we are trusted to tell you what's going on but we're not in the us so we're a, we are a sort of trusted external view of things uh so that has that has benefited us as, enormously as well uh, another thing that has has helped us is the fact that um we've never relied very heavily on advertising as part of our business model so we've always had more than 50% of our revenue coming from subscribers and that meant that when advertising fell very dramatically you know in the in the last 10 years or so um it had much less of an impact on us than it has had on other newspapers uh and in particular american newspapers where 90% of their revenue came from advertising in some cases so um we're at about 65% revenue from subscriptions now and only about something like 15% of the rest you know only about 15% of the revenue is actually from advertising a lot of the rest of the revenue comes from other things so we are well insulated um, relatively speaking against the uh, the gradual decline of display advertising not just in print but online I mean display advertising is a less and less viable business wherever you look unless you're Google and Facebook it's just a horrible business to be in um, so all of those things being in English not being in English but being in England not being in America um, and the nature of the business model and so on were just good luck and um you know they're very very hard things to copy if you google the expression more like the economist in quotes which i like to do sometimes for a laugh <laughs> uh then you will find the editors of newsweek and time and various other magazines say i'm going to make it more like the economist now it's very very hard for you to do that if you are um an american publication because one of the things that have have helped us is not being american um <laughs> but also having a having a um, a strong brand and also have keeping our subscription prices high uh, we've had to keep them high but we've been able to justify that premium price because people value what we produce but um you know a lot of those other news magazines went for low um subscription prices so that they could maximize their audiences uh for advertising purposes and that model doesn't work anymore because the advertising revenue isn't there um and it's then very very hard to raise your price from a $15 annual subscription to $130 which is what which is where we are and we, you can see newsweek trying to do it now they're trying to raise their prices so all of those things are um you know factors in our success and they're in many cases quite hard to emulate if you're other people which is why I'm very happy to talk about what they are <laughs> well yeah cuz i know politically that this comparison doesn't really make sense but like the only analogous thing that i've seen in america that sort of works is the new yorker yes yeah, so the new yorker is the next most expensive magazine after us so yeah. our subscription is $130 um ju- that's just for print or digital it's 165 for both the new yorker is something like $70 i think uh, and i love the new yorker and i you know i, I my favorite reading when i get on a plane i want to have the new yorker or the economist in my bag uh, or my phone so that i can uh, i can read them and they i think they're very sort of complementary the new yorker is clearly um you know it's not a global perspective it's very much rooted in a place in new york uh, and that's 
part of its attraction. Um, so no, I like the New Yorker very much, it, but it loses money. I mean, it's subsidised by the rest of Condé Nast, uh, essentially. Um, so even though it's quite expensive, um, I think it's still a, a, a loss-making publication. And then all the other magazines are even, you know, have even lower subscription prices than that. Yeah, okay, so uh, as two outsiders, right? I, I did want to ask you, like, how do you see, like, the whole situation in America shaking out? Yeah. Like the print magazine. Now, and that's like, I know that's sort of a broad question and you can't really answer it in like two sentences. No, well, I think you can. I mean, I think, I think essentially going back to the my sort of 2000 year view of media history, I think we had a lot of local monopolies um, in particularly in the US, metro area newspapers, um, where if you were a car dealership, you know, there was there was only one newspaper or maybe two newspapers where uh, where you were going to put your ads uh, and there was only one radio station or maybe two radio stations. And those, all of those papers and news uh, and radio stations, uh, but particularly the papers, have to compete with all the other papers in America and all the other papers in the world. Um, so that's kind of quite difficult, um, unless you've got very valuable local content that people will pay for, which generally means local sports content. That seems to be the thing that is keeping the local papers alive. But essentially, there's, you know, there was a temporary period where it was possible to have these very lucrative local monopolies, and that period has come to an end. And that means the number of newspapers is going to go down, particularly in America, um, and and, but I think it will go down across the board. I think, you know, the number of British newspapers, I think there are more newspapers in Britain than can, than, than can survive. Uh, and I would expect um, several of them to disappear or merge in the next, you know, 10 years. So I think there is going to be a shakeout there. The other thing that's happening at the moment is that we see new digital-only news organisations that have appeared um, that are funded by VC money in many cases. And they are not required to make a profit. Uh, they, you know, they'll, they'll build the audience and make the profit later or something. And we see lots of examples of this. The best example is probably the Huffington Post because, um, you know, it built a big audience. It sold itself to AOL for whatever it was, $300 million. It's still not profitable. And it has, a, a, you know, a big reach and it gets a lot of its articles free because they're, they're donated to it. Uh, and yet it can't make that model work. So I think this idea of the new news organization that is funded by display advertising and is digital only and is kept alive for a bit by VC, but then eventually you realize it doesn't work. Uh, we're starting to see a shakeout there. So Recode has just sold itself to Vox. Yeah. Uh, I, I mean, Vox, I, I admire their journalism a great deal, but I really don't know how sustainable that model of theirs is. Yeah, okay, thank you for saying that, because that's, yeah, thank you. Just somebody else had to say that. I, I mean, I, I just look at all of these people, and, and, uh, and, you know, Quartz, again, I admire what they do. Obviously, they are a subsidiary of the Atlantic, but essentially, they've got funding from the Atlantic. They're loss-making still. They've got some kind of three-year plan, but I just don't see how they're going to make money. You could do things like a events and you could do some sponsored content but you know I really don't think that's going to support a very large newsroom anyway I wish them the best of luck I don't I don't wish these people to fail but but I just I just look at it and think there's a bubble here and then the other thing you see is that um, VCs some of them seem to be saying well some of these new startups and BuzzFeed is the best example so Andreessen Horowitz have invested in in BuzzFeed and their justification is that BuzzFeed has built all of its own technology it has its own publishing systems has its own analytic systems its own advertising systems um, and therefore you it justifies valuing it like a tech firm. I'm really not sure that's true. I'm really not sure how much of an advantage all of those things give BuzzFeed. That said, I think BuzzFeed's model is interesting. Um, I think it's you know it's a it's a genuine departure. It's you know an ad an ad agency wrapped in a in a news organisation, and it's a it's a model that works even when most of your content is read on platforms other than your own website. So BuzzFeed is very happy with things like you know Apple News and Facebook Instant Articles because uh, it doesn't really mind where it's content is read because some of the content is editorial and some of it is advertising. Uh, well, yeah, but there's no there's no Chinese wall then, right? No, there actually is a Chinese wall at BuzzFeed. Uh, so they, the, uh, the two kinds of articles are written by different teams. There is a debate about how strong the Chinese wall is and whether, you know, so there you get these periodic flare-ups where people find BuzzFeed editorial articles that seem to have been taken down, possibly because of pressure from advertisers. It's not quite sure. It's not quite clear. So Gorka has been bashing uh, BuzzFeed about <laughs> this. Uh, but anyway, it's what's interesting is that BuzzFeed does still, whether or not you think they do it well, does still adhere to the idea that you need to have a Chinese wall between those two bits of the company. But the, the rest of the news of the organisation of the, of the structure there is, is you know, I think very good. I mean, you have editorial, you have the advertising um, division, then you have technology. You know, you don't have a kind of 
um, binary split between editorial journalists and the whole of the rest of the company, which is what you get <laughs> in, in, in old news organisations. Instead, you have you know different divisions like events or video that have some editorial people in them. Uh, and that's something I've been trying to move towards here. So with Economist Films, which we just set up, instead of saying, is it on the editorial side of the wall or is it on the commercial side of the wall? We just said, neither. We're not going to answer that question. It is a separate business unit. It reports straight to the CEO and to the editor-in-chief, and it has both editorial and commercial people in it. And I think we're going to need, we're going to need more units within the company like that, so that eventually the Chinese wall, it, it doesn't go away completely, but it's implemented in a different way. Um, and I think that's sort of the kind of structure we need to move towards. Yeah, fair enough. But to- talking about Vox and, you know, BuzzFeed, yep. that still doesn't solve that problem that you alluded to, that it sort of feels like a bubble and how sustainable all of that is. Well, well I, think the, I think the BuzzFeed model itself is, you know, is possibly the answer. Vice has an internal agency called Virtue, ha-ha. Uh, <laughs> Virtue, Virtue is what makes the money um, and it makes the sponsor content. And then that goes out in the streams with the, uh, with the other content. Um, and so you use the news... Um, organization to build the audience and the credibility for the sponsor content. Uh, although Vox has now, sorry, Vice has now moved towards um, a more straightforward model of simply getting TV stations to pay them to make TV for them, because they seem to be very good at that. So that's that, that's probably a simpler model. And, um, you know, you can see why they'd want to move towards that because it's just I mean our model is basically the the readers pay us for our journalism that's a nice simple model too yeah but that that's my point yeah that's that none of the new sort of news organizations are doing that well there are one or two that are so the information would be an example oh that is true yeah so that's uh, Jessica Lessig's um, startup and then uh, you know people like Ben Thompson I mean obviously Andrew Sullivan tried this with his uh, with his blog but it doesn't seem to have worked um, well yeah he burnt out right I mean that's how that yeah ex- well I mean I, I, they were very dependent on his personal you know it's difficult they had a key man problem there which is that what people liked was him and his writing and it was difficult for him to um, you know find more people and scale himself up um, and that's understandable but anyway i think i think we we are seeing a shakeout giga arm went bust as well yeah. um and you know I, I i i think people are starting to look at these companies and saying actually are are they going to be able to build an audience and then monetize it through advertising um and you know some of them clearly have the the aim of selling themselves to AOL or selling themselves to Yahoo and that just makes it someone else's problem but in the long run um is there a new model that you know can sustain news organizations from advertising i'm not convinced that there is so but we'll see but i think i think the answer on both the print and the digital side is um is that we are going to see a shake out right. well that's uh okay that you've calmed me now basically yeah, yeah. <laughs> no but honestly because i it just it feels like more of the same with uh you know vc money and We'll figure out how to monetize it later. And I don't know, I, I, I sort of, I, I don't really, that's that's going to sound weird, but I don't really care when it's a, like a tech startup, right? Because if the technology doesn't go anywhere, like who cares? Yeah. But when it's like a news organization, the, I, I, there's, a, you know, there's a voice in the back of my mind going, this is responsible work, people. Like this is not... You know, the goal shouldn't be to sell yourself to Yahoo, right? No, no, that's true. But the good thing about this and the good thing about the VC money sloshing around in this business is that it is leading to, you know, lots of innovation and people are trying lots of things. And and then we can look at them and say, oh, that's an interesting way of doing things. What would our take on that be? Um, So I I like it in that respect. Of course, it also bids up the price of journalists. So um, so that's that's not quite so great. But I mean, you know, ultimately it does, when VCs throw money at a field, even if they you know, don't end, end up making money, and most of them won't. Uh, it does encourage people to try new things and to innovate, and I think um, that does have a collective right. benefit. Okay, so now we'll uh, move to the last three questions, which are always the same. So we're going to talk about your hardware and your software. Oh, okay. Which basically means what, what do you use to get work done, and you know, your phone and your tablet, and yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay, so I have an iPhone 6 Plus, uh, which I love, um, and then I have a quite old MacBook Air, um, the MacBook Air 11. When it came out, it was what, 2010, was it? I think it was 2010, wasn't it? Yeah. The, the, does it have the uh, backlit keyboard or no? 
That's no, it doesn't. Ah, it's okay. really, yeah, it's really old. Right, so th- and what's really funny about it is that um, I don't think I've ever owned a computer for as long as that computer because it's getting on for five years now. Um, and it's it's still great. I mean, because it doesn't have a hard disk, it doesn't bog down. And you could just keep, you know, open Word and Excel and, and, and uh, Slack and Photoshop and it just keeps on going. It's it's great. And Chrome with millions of tabs. So um, so I do like the look of the new 12-inch ones and I'm, I, I'll probably buy one of those in the next six months. But it's not... You'll hate the keyboard you will no, I, well i went and tried it actually i didn't mind it so so honestly yeah i've re- I th- oh we had a review on it uh, my, oh just okay yeah, okay Fine. well it's obviously it's obviously something that divides people very deeply <laughs> but um, but no but although people say it's underpowered it's actually slightly more powerful than the 2011 <laughs> care 11 inch so for me it's going to be like a speed boost that's going to be great but but it's really not about performance uh you know th- that thing is is fast enough and i think the the crucial step was removing hard disks from computers that really stops them thrashing and ssd yeah SSDs, yes. Yeah, SSDs is the way to go. So anyway, so I'm very. Uh, uh, those are. That's quite an old computer, and I, uh, you know, I can't think of when I last had a, the same computer for five years. But and I could practically go on using it for probably a couple more. But uh, as I say, I like the look of the new one. So that's the uh, that's the hardware piece of the puzzle. And then, the, of course, the very important question is what about the gaming side of things? <laughs> on, on, on that side, I, I am an Xbox fan. Uh-huh. Um, and and what I like about the Xbox One actually is it's starting to. Microsoft is very clearly. I think they're going to. This will be the last console they'll make, and they're just going to push people towards gaming PCs. But, uh, well, maybe I'm wrong. But the the uh, it's clear that the Xbox One is able to do a lot of the things it can because it's really just a PC, and so you could get uh, PC games to run on it very easily. You can port things easily, and so we're getting quite a lot of the benefits of the PC gaming community. Things like mods in, you know, in uh, yeah. Skyrim or whatever. Um, and they, Bethesda just said that you could uh, you could move um, mods over to the Xbox. And of course you can because it's the same architecture. Um, so uh, it's actually quite a nice. Uh, it's quite a nice. Uh, console to have, I think, because it's kind of it, it, it means I can avoid having a PC to, to game on, and it means that the the what you can do on a PC, which I sometimes look at and say, oh, I wish I had a PC and I could do those things, and then I think, no, I don't want a PC, I don't want to get involved with having a PC, uh, <laughs> and I I, I feel, think that less and less because the Xbox One is becoming more PC like or taking on the benefits of PC gaming. Yeah, it's it's basically a really good PC you hook up to your TV, yeah. Yeah, it is. Yeah. It's just, I mean, it's exactly. I'm an Xbox fan as well, so, you know. Yeah, okay, good, good. So I've been playing Elite this week, which is fantastic. <laughs> I remember Elite from, from the first time around in 1983, <laughs> and uh, 84, and uh, God, it's it's so nostalgic. I'm really, I'm loving it. Oh, yeah, that, I've been doing the same sort of trip down memory lane with uh, Knights of the Old Republic on the iPad. Uh, oh, oh, yeah. oh, yes, I have to confess I've done that too, yeah, so. Oh, it's just so great, just. No, that was... And that was the game, you may be like me, that I had not played RPGs before. And so many people said, this is a game that will convert you to RPGs and that will, that even people who have not, who don't, who don't think they like RPGs like this game. Oh, isn't it fantastic? Yes. Good old KOTOR. I love that game. Yeah, I, I was the same. Just stayed clear of RPGs and then somehow found KOTOR way back when. And, yeah. Yeah. And then, you know, then you can move on to Skyrim and all that stuff. So. Oh, and then yeah. The Witcher 3. Oh, I have a co-worker you'd get along with because he just... Oh, oh right. Nice. Okay. <laughs> I, I keep seeing stuff about The Witcher, actually, and thinking, oh, maybe I should investigate this. <laughs> maybe that's next. But Elite is going to eat my life, I think, for the next couple of months. So. Oh, yeah. It's, it's a time suck, but it's a fun time suck. So, yeah. It is indeed. Okay, and, and software-wise, um, okay, since you're a 6-plus user, let's, let's uh, I don't know, top five apps on the phone. Well, I could, of course, ask the phone itself what the um, most used are. So that's quite easily done. Um, but maybe I'll come up with a slightly less rigorous and more interesting answer than that. <laughs> um, well, clearly Twitter. Well, yeah. Um, uh, so what, official client or what are you? Uh, yeah, I just use the official client. Really? Client. Okay, that's... Yes, uh, yes. Um, I, I know that's not very fashionable, but, um, <laughs> but you know, I, I don't have a problem with it. Yeah, it's supposed to be tweet, TweetBot, you know, Tom. It's yeah. supposed to be TweetBot. <laughs> well, they've limited the number of people who could use those apps, haven't they? Oh, so, uh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, so I, anyway, so I've, I've always been very happy with just the the, um, the native uh, client and the native website. Uh, I mean, obviously, Gmail and um, uh, Instagram. And then what games am I playing? Uh, the Slack app is obviously yeah. something I use quite often. Um, and... Uh, Things I've recently started playing with, uh, Nuzzle is quite fun. I've uh, been mucking around with um, Cardboard and all the various VR apps um, that you can use on the, you know, with the Cardboard headset. Uh, so that's quite good. Um, Two Dots is probably the game I've played the most and, and uh, Alto's Adventure, they're the games I've been playing most in the last month on my on my phone. Um, yeah, that probably that probably covers most of it. Oh, I can just double tap and see what the... Um, 
see what the most recent apps are. Espresso, there it is. <laughs> Facebook. Um, yeah, Nuzzle, Hangouts. I, I love how people never, like, when I ask these questions, right? Uh, they never say Facebook unless they look at their phone, right? I think it's just assumed, I guess. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. But, yeah yes. No, it's just obvious. It's like email. It's like not saying not saying Chrome or um, or, or uh, Gmail. Yeah. No, those seem to be those seem to be the main ones. Okay. And then my final final question, Tom. If you had to pick one like uh, physical thing that's not your grandmother, it doesn't. Uh, it's not supposed to be a human being, right? Yes. That you feel like it was made for you. You might still have it. You might not. Uh, but this, that that one thing that made you, you know. Did you feel it was right for you? Oh, that's a really good question. Um, yeah, because I'm not terribly sentimental about things. Yeah, I'm the same way. That's why I ask. When I go, when I leave home, and I when I go on holiday, I kind of think, well, as long as all my data's safe in the cloud, and I've got you know, <laughs> I've got my laptop in my bag, and as long as my family's safe, I really don't mind if the house burns down because there isn't you know, there isn't that much that. You know, my drum kit isn't in the house anyway. It's in storage. But even my drum kit, you know, drum kits come and go. I'm not that <laughs> attached to them. And cars cars come and go. I mean, I quite like the car I have at the moment is, is um, uh, I'm, I'm very, I suppose, I suppose I am more attached to that car than I have been to. I, I just appreciate the engineering in that car. Okay, I'll, I'll take that as the answer then. Because, yeah, okay. Yeah, so it's a, it's a, it's a Mercedes B-Class. Um, and it's the first car I've had with an automatic gearbox having always thought that automatics were you know not for me but it's but then i went to the car last year on holiday and it had a dual clutch automatic and i just thought this is fantastic i don't want and the, <laughs> and the mileage is better on so anyway so i, I got this b class but it also has this hilarious feature called we call it the coffee alert and it's where it can tell if you're falling asleep on a long drive <laughs> and it's and it's what it's doing it's monitoring a number of things the cabin temperature the length of the trip but it, the main thing it's looking at is how many micro corrections you make on the steering um because the number that you make uh, is a very very good indicator of how alert you are. Oh right, yeah. Yeah, and so uh, so you know, driving back from a long trip, and we've done some quite long trips in the past year to weddings and things on the other side of the country. And after sort of three or four hours, I'll, I'll think, oh, I think I'm doing okay. I don't need to stop for coffee. And then the car will go beep, and I'll say, oh, well, <laughs> no, no, I, I'm fine, really, I'm fine. Really. But it but it it calls it calls it much earlier, and then it'll go off again, you know, five minutes later, and I'll say, actually, I am feeling a bit drowsy. So. Uh, that is that is a, a kind of cute technology trick um, on a car that is overall you know beautifully engineered anyway, um, and I just you know I love the I love the toys, uh, and I can't wait till the, you know the uh, the self driving features start to get clever as well. And then when the cars go away altogether, we just have self driving pods that we summon with the Uber <laughs> app. I'm totally there. I went in the I went in a self driving car in Shanghai as I said, but I also went in the self driving pods at Heathrow Airport. Oh right, uh, yeah, I saw that. Yeah, yeah, and they are they're pretty amazing as well. So I'm ready for that future. So. I, I, even the car, I'm not that sentimental about, and I, you know, I don't feel I have to own one, and it doesn't. Yeah, matter. well, I'll, I'll take that as the answer, just because of the. But take it as the answer anyway, because yeah, exactly. <laughs> just the co the coffee alert thing is awesome. Yeah, so. it is. It's a great. It's a it's a, a good toy. Uh, Tom, that's pretty much it. Like, thank you very much for doing this and talking to me. Honestly. Well, thank you very much for having me. That was the 22nd episode of the Storming Mortal podcast. If you enjoyed it, you can find the other episodes at stormingmortal.com. Uh, if you could uh, leave a review in iTunes, that'd be also great. Or you can just email me at hello at stormingmortal.com. And I'm also on Twitter at AtomicXX. Thank you very much for listening. And uh, till next time. Bye.